It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Welcome to season three. Thanks very much for tuning in. So, quite a bit has happened over the past few weeks since our last episode. Al-Qaeda's leader, Ayman Zawahri, was killed by a US drone strike in a posh part of Kabul. Ethiopia's terrible war in its northern Tigray region has tragically just started up again. Famine looming elsewhere in the Horn of Africa as well. There was renewed fighting also in Libya. Things still tense around Taiwan. Weeks after US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit, things also heating up ahead of Brazil's election next month. And the window seemingly closing further on efforts to revive the Iran nuclear deal. There was good news in contrast from Kenya, a peaceful election and transfer of power. Yemen's truce has largely held, though whether it will survive past early October isn't clear. Plus, of course, Russia's war in Ukraine grinds on. Kiev launching a counteroffensive in the south in Kherson and a winter of price hikes and energy shortages looming in Europe. And we'll have plenty of opportunity over the coming weeks to look at all of this. Today, though, we're going to start the season with Iraq's political crisis, the recent violence in the capital Baghdad, Shia politics, and the role of Shiite leader Muqtada al-Sadr. A political crisis in Iraq has erupted into violence after the powerful Shiite leader Muqtada al-Sadr announced he was quitting frontline politics. Gunfire and explosions have rocked Baghdad's high-security green zone in the past few hours, with reports of heavy fighting between rival Shiite factions. At least 20 people have been killed and hundreds injured in the worst fighting the Iraqi capital has seen in years. After months of mass protests, Iraqis went to the polls in October last year. Muqtada al-Sadr's party did better than expected. Sadr's may be best known for fighting the US with his Mehdi army in the 2000s. He now brands himself an Iraqi nationalist, opposed to both the US's military presence in Iraq and Iran's influence. After the vote, Sadr tried to form a government with the Kurdistan Democratic Party, the KDP, the main Kurdish party, and with Iraq's Sunni bloc. Basically, he was trying to shut out other Shia parties that were grouped together in a coalition, the Shia coordination framework. He was particularly trying to shut out his nemesis, former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. 
But Sada was thwarted by the Iraqi Supreme Court. The court ruled that he needed a two-thirds quorum to bring together parliamentarians to select a president. That quorum proved beyond Sada's reach. He then announced he was quitting politics and his deputies walked out of parliament. Protests broke out after Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sada announced he was quitting frontline politics. His supporters broke into the presidential palace, which houses the prime minister's office. Many even taking to the palace pool. Our demands are to dissolve parliament and to hold the corrupt to account. And we say, my master, Muqtada al-Sadr, their pride is under your feet and will sacrifice for you. Victory is ours. After the Sadrist walkout, Sadr's Shia rivals tried to appoint a president close to Maliki. Sadr's armed supporters, the so-called peace brigades, in essence the rebranded Mehdi army, occupied the parliament building and its surroundings in Baghdad's fortified green zone. Chaos in Baghdad's heavily fortified green zone. Rival Shiite factions targeting each other. The fighting escalated late on Monday night after a day of violence and political turmoil. Sadr's supporters then clashed with Shia paramilitary groups, in particular two Hashid al-Shabi groups, or popular mobilization units, basically Shia militias with ties to Iran that are now embedded in the Iraqi security forces. There are some brutal militias, but the Sadrists shouldn't be vulgar. I still believe that my supporters are disciplined. That's why if you don't withdraw from the parliament within 60 minutes, I am not going to be the Sadrist movement leader again. I don't even want you to stage a peaceful demonstration. Things have now calmed down. That was Sadr calling his supporters off. He's even apologised to the Iraqi people for the bloodshed. But it's far from clear what will happen next and whether Sadr and his rivals can reach some form of agreement on the way forward. So how should we assess what's just happened? Does Sadr want to break up Iraq's Shia house or does he want to dominate it? And what should we expect next? So to talk about all this, I'm delighted to welcome back on the show Lahib Higel, who is Crisis Group's Iraq expert. Lahib, welcome back on. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. So, Lahib, we'll talk in in more depth about how the crisis came about, who was involved and its significance, the risks and more violence. But why don't we start with a quick overview of where things stand? I mean, how do things look now in in Baghdad? Well, more than 10 months uh, into the government formation process following the October elections, we've reached new heights of tensions between uh, the Shia political parties escalating to deadly clashes inside the green zone. But I think this also means that we've sort of reached the ceiling for escalation for now. We've seen that uh, Muqtada Sadr himself has sort of reached out with an olive branch. It hasn't been directly answered by his main opponents within the Shia coordination framework. Former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki and a few groups that represent the paramilitaries under the Hashd al-Shaabi or the Popular Mobilization Forces umbrella. We cannot rule out further clashes or escalation between these groups, but 
on the larger scheme of things, most political actors right now are seeking dialogue rather than further escalation. And so let's back up a bit, if we can, then, and, and run through how the crisis came about. So last October, there were elections, as we heard up top. Mokhtar al-Sadr did much better than people anticipated, far outstripping other Shia parties and upsetting the balance of power in the legislature. Absolutely. Um, that is the main cause of, of the crisis that we've seen over the last 10 months. Sadr won because we had a new electoral law or a new electoral system, and he was a part of designing that system. In fact, he has wanted a similar system for many years that would suit the demographics of his constituencies better. And so Iraq went from the Sadlage system of party lists that essentially enabled the largest winning parties to choose the candidates that would go into parliament, whereas under the current system of single net non-transferable votes with smaller electoral districts, Sadr and a few other parties, specifically the biggest Kurdish party, the KDP, and Taqaddum of parliament speaker Mohammed al-Halbusi made a great win, but it was mainly Sadr. So this came as a shock to the other Shia parties, they, of course, were aware of the election law, but they didn't prepare the same way that Sadr did. They also, because they are an umbrella of so many different parties competing essentially for the same vote, they split their votes in many of the electoral districts, whereas Sadr was able to field his candidates in a way that he could ensure almost at a ballot station level the amount of votes that would come into one single candidate. And just, uh, Lahib, maybe to, to expand on that a little bit. So basically, Iraq, for previous elections, had, had run, as you said, proportional representations, one district countrywide. And in essence, that meant that parties didn't really have to think tactically about their votes. Seats are awarded to the parties in proportion to the number of votes they won. These reforms, which, as you say, Sadat himself played a big role in pushing through, shifted Iraq to a different voting system, the single non-transferable vote, so SNTV, uh, in quite small districts. Now, SNTV is uh, quite a rare system and can, can throw up these quite distorted results. And sort of without going into too much detail, parties basically have to, to game the system. They have to make sure they don't spread their votes too thinly over too many candidates, so split the votes, but they also can't concentrate too many votes in single candidates. And you know, it's a system that tends to benefit well-organised parties. And from what I understand, the vote tallies the number of votes that Sadr's party uh, won compared, for example, with the number of votes that Maliki's State of Law party won. I mean, they weren't so different to previous elections, the vote tallies, but the results in terms of the seats were very different, precisely because Sadr, he basically gamed the system much better. Yes, that's correct. And I mean, again, the rivals to, to Sadr uh, did not only comprise one party of, of the state of law, it was so many others, pro-Iran paramilitary groups that made an inroad into parliament in the last election of 2018, in addition to many other parties of former prime minister, for example, Haider al-Abadi, Ammar al-Hakim. So all of those were competing uh, essentially for the same constituents, whereas Sadr has a very homogenous base and a very loyal one at that. And so Sadr does much better than people expected. And he then moves 
basically to form a government with the KDP, which you talked about, the biggest Kurdish party, and with the Sunni parties. So, I mean, what sort of explains that alliance? Why did he not try to include some of the other Shia parties? Well, Sadr has tried to benefit from the narrative that came out of the Tashreen protest movement in 2019 and 2020. That movement was really calling for the downfall of the current political system that they see as corrupt and and highly uh, elitist. Uh, The movement also called for constitutional reforms. These are all things that Sadr has picked up on and adapted to his own goals, let's say. Sadr was really aiming to marginalize a select group within the political establishment on the Shia side, and that is his his uh, main rival, Nouri al-Maliki, but also paramilitary leaders that are actually splinter-offs from his Mahdi army that was um, that Maliki fought in in 2008 and these leaders that sort of split off from the Mahdi army Qais al-Khazali and the, a few others have been concerned about Sadr dominating government Sadr then went on to form an alliance with the KDP and and the Sunni alliance in order to break with the tradition that has dominated government formation since 2005 which is consensus governments, essentially comprising all main political parties in government. He tried to form a majority government and essentially forcing his opponents into opposition. But because we don't really have a tradition of opposition politics in Iraq, uh, this was unacceptable to the other side. And the main reason for that is really that opposition politics doesn't serve anyone in Iraq because the whole point of being in government is essentially being able to tap into the state resources through, for example, appointing ministers or having director generals throughout the Iraqi ministries and and state institutions through which you can ensure that uh, you can siphon off money to your patronage networks and therefore make sure that you get re-elected while sort of making a lot of uh, money. So for any party to imagine that they would be outside of of that benefit for four years is is not really fathomable. So it was sort of a high-risk gambit in some ways by Sadr, right? I mean, in essence, trying to exclude all his Shia rivals, forming an alliance with, as you say, Kurds, the KDP, and the Sunnis, and... At least in the short term, it's failed, right? I mean, the Supreme Court, as we heard up top, came up with this ruling uh, that basically meant he couldn't convene parliament to elect a president and government. Absolutely. I think uh, the ruling of the federal Supreme Court has actually not only caused an issue for the current government formation, but for any future government formation process. The two-third quorum rule to elect president is uh, enshrined in the Constitution. However, the clarification of the federal Supreme Court made sure that you cannot even convene the parliamentary session without two-third attendance of the MPs. And the Sudras, together with their, with their partners, fell short of that by about 15 seats. So they had 202 attending out of 329. And this is really going to cause a, an issue uh, for whoever wins future elections. And the court's decision 
is sort of widely seen as the result of pressure from Sadr's rivals, right? And it's an issue for future elections because there's always likely to be more than a third of parliamentarians, of deputies, that aren't going to want to support the formation of a government. Exactly, especially if it's a majority government or attempt at a majority government, which is what Sadr tried. The reason why we have not come up with this problem before is because there has been widespread acceptance on the president. And therefore, it's been easier to come to the point where you can nominate the prime minister, which is the task of the president. So thwarted by this Supreme Court decision, in essence, Sadr then pulled his 73 parliamentarians out of parliament, expecting that he would be called back in by his Shia rivals and they would form a a sort of traditional consensus government, right? But again, that that didn't go according to plan. I think what Sutter tried to do uh, was fall back to one of his his usual tactics, which is in one way or another signal that he is leaving the political process. He's done so in the past. During the election campaign, he stated that he was uh, withdrawing and then he got all of his opponents to focus on getting him back into the race because they fear a government that would exclude him. And then, you know, he was back on track, never really intending on, on leaving the, the campaign or the run to elections. And I think there was a similar calculus, uh, at play here when he withdrew his MPs. He thought that that would encourage his opponents to seek some sort of settlement with him. Instead, they went ahead nominating a candidate for the premiership that is seen to be close to Maliki, Mohammed Shia Sudani. Uh, and this was unacceptable to Sadr. On top of that, it also coincided with a series of audio leaks that have widely been accepted as, as authentic, in which Maliki is heard saying that he's ready to fight Sadr and that he has started arming groups in the South. So I think these two events in combination provoked Sadr. And then, of course, the, the Shia coordination framework parties also went ahead to swear in the second winning MPs to take up those uh, spots that the Sadrists left. I should add here, though, that the framework parties have been far from in agreement on these moves. Some of their leaders have realized that these initiatives would provoke Sadr, uh, but they weren't really able to stop that development because it was very much dominated by personalities like Maliki and a few others that wanted to form a government without Sadr. Because the Shia coordination framework isn't just people like Nouri al-Maliki or Hashtar Shabi leaders with close ties to Iran, but also includes more middle ground Shia parties. Exactly. And and really, the only thing that has brought all of these um, uh, leaders together is their willingness to stop Sadr from, from dominating a future government. I wouldn't say that they necessarily have that much in common. We should also say that, you know, those that have opposed some of these uh, decisions that the framework uh, did take are also part of the Hashtashabi. So it's not even just the moderates uh, that have been cautioning against these steps. There are also leaders such as Hadi al-Amri, which commands one of the biggest paramilitary groups in Iraq, the, the better organization that cautioned against it. His statements have also been, you know, much more moderate than some of his counterparts when it comes to Sadr's actions. 
And why why didn't Sadr initially just reach out to some of those sort of more accommodating parts of the Shia political spectrum? Why didn't he try and do that before trying to convene parliament? So he did precisely that before he withdrew his parliamentarians. So the mentioned leader, Hadi al-Amri, was one of those leaders that he reached out to. And being the pragmatist that, that he is, I mean, Amri, he seemed to be willing to jump boats. But I think both Iran opposed that, wanting to sort of keep the so-called Shia house together. And also, of course, his partners in the, in the framework opposed that sort of cautioning against what uh, a Sadrist dominated government would mean for the rest of them, what it would mean for the Hashd al-Sha'bi institution. And I think they were right to be concerned because Sadr's speech immediately after the elections was very victorious. It mentioned the Hashd al-Sha'bi specifically and his desire to reform that institution. And they saw that as a threat to their interests. We'll come back in a moment to uh, how big a hand Iran has had in the in in the crisis, one way or another. But first, so Sadr then sends his supporters, now called the Peace Brigades, but in essence, what the remnants of the Mehdi Army sends them in to the Green Zone, what used to be heavily fortified, still well protected Green Zone. They go in, they they occupy Parliament, and they sit there for a few days before these clashes with some of the other security forces and the Hashtar Shabi militias that are now part of the security forces, right? Yes. So, I mean, what happened was really that there was a frustration on part of some of these paramilitary groups that have a presence inside the green zone, that the security forces didn't do enough to stop them. And of course, that's uh, they take that back to the prime minister, who is also the commander in chief. They've seen him for a long time to be pro-Sadr, to have facilitated, uh, you know, the entry of Sadrists to top positions within the state institutions and within the executive branch itself. So after... This is the caretaker, Prime Minister uh, Mustafa al-Kadimi. Exactly. Many of the paramilitary groups have been frustrated with the fact that the security forces on the instructions of the caretaker prime minister has allowed state institutions to be occupied for such a long time. And the main trigger, I would say, for the clashes that erupted on the night of 29 of August was because the supporters of Sadr then entered the governmental palace, previously known as the presidential palace. Symbolically, that is a building of the executive branch that was just yet another institution uh, that Sadr supporters occupied, and they considered that unacceptable. So some of these groups, mainly Asa'ab al-Haq and, and a couple of other paramilitary groups, opened fire uh, on the Sadrist followers. And the Peace Brigades or Saraya Salam, which is the armed group of, of Sadr, responded to that with then the consequences following that there was also attacks on the green zone from the outside with mortars, rockets, RPGs. It looked quite serious for those 24 hours or less that this was going on. But then as we, we have seen in Iraq before, there are a few actors that can actually intervene to stop this type of escalation. Uh, Ayatollah Sistani, the, the highest religious authority in Iraq, has been said to have sent a letter to Sadr. This was uh, never made public. Sistani is also 
very cautious with getting involved with politics. He only does it when it's really required. And I believe that there are also other regional powers within, let's say, the transnational network of, of Shia elites in the region that have also passed on messages to both sides within this conflict in the Shia house to, to de-escalate. So acting on that, uh, Sadr went live the day after apologizing to the Iraqi people and I would say attempted to sort of extend an olive branch to his opponents. Many other leaders welcomed that move, including the president, the prime minister, and also leaders within the Shia coordination framework. However, his main opponents, Nouri al-Maliki and Khaz Ali, did not respond in a conciliatory manner. And therefore, we've seen the tensions continuing, despite the fact that these uh, deadly clashes have ceased. And Lahib, the, the clashes themselves, what dozens of people killed in the fighting in the green zone, and as you say, not just gunfights, but RPG fire into the green zone from, from outside. So who, who was responsible for that? Well, it seems like it was mainly the Sudras, but but also the the others engaged in the fight, meaning uh, specifically, actually, the groups that are tied to Qais al-Khazali and Shibli Zaidi. So it's important, actually, to also emphasize here that the clashes were contained to mainly three groups. Others didn't get into the fight. And this is an important aspect to remember, again, of the framework parties, that they are highly fragmented, that they don't agree on these steps. They certainly don't agree with this type of escalation. We've even seen some of the more, let's say, hardline pro-Iran paramilitary groups also staying out of the fight. Kata'ab Hezbollah, for instance. So, when the clashes then moved to another city because they erupted in Basra a few days later, again, it was between the same groups. It did not consume the whole spectrum of Shia armed groups, and it certainly did not consume the political parties that don't command militias. And the Basra fighting, that was again mostly, that was the Sadrists against the Khazali uh, Exactly, brigades. yes. And we should also mention here that uh, Qais al-Khazali and, and uh, Muqtada al-Sadr have uh, a personal grudge going uh, back uh, more than a decade, really, because Khazali split off from the Mahdi army and sort of took a more, let's say, pro-Iranian path, whereas Sadr, you know, has... Uh, been sticking to uh, a nationalist approach, or at least this is what he's sort of trying to convey to his followers. And we can talk uh, in a moment about some of the concrete differences between Sadr and some of his rivals. But Lahib, you talked about Ayatollah Sistani's role, and obviously Sistani has an enormous amount of weight inside Iraq among the Shia. But there's also these other stories, and you referenced the transnational Shia networks, but there's even stories of Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah uh, from, from Lebanon. I mean, he hasn't always had great relations with Sadr, but of, of, of Nasrallah getting involved, Tehran, which uh, seems to have discouraged Shia parties from joining up with Sadr initially, also appears to have urged restraint. I mean, what, what do you make of some of those stories? Well, the news about Hassan Nasrallah mediating, I, I don't think are quite true. One reason is that Nasrallah and Sadr don't really get along. That doesn't mean, though, that they don't have contact with each other. And if it's not on a personal basis, then there are within this network, because all of these clerical families within the region have family members that live 
in all of these cities. So, you know, Sadr has family members that are residing in Tehran, that are residing in, in Beirut. It would not be inconceivable that there is communication that, that goes through, uh, some of the second tire of, of leaders within these movements. And I am quite sure that both Tehran and Beirut, uh, have been quite clear in their messaging to both sides that they don't want to see intra-Shia strife erupting in Iraq. Now, there are limits to to what they can do. Obviously, I think in this case, Sistani's words probably played a bigger role, but they are also able to to put a lid on when needed. What we've seen, though, and this specifically goes to the role of Iran, they're not really able to prevent these types of clashes as they were in the past when Qasem Soleimani, the former commander of, of the Quds Force, and Abu Mahdi Mahendis, that was the head of the Hashid Commission, were still alive. Soleimani, as you say, was the commander of Iran's Revolutionary Guards, killed alongside Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis by the US in, what, early 2020? And so, what, the crisis would have played out differently? Perhaps the violence itself would have happened differently, or even the Hashtar Shabi forces that got involved in the fighting might not have done so. Were Soleimani still around? Perhaps not, but I think uh, perhaps even more important is uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. His persona and the loyalty and respect that, that he enjoyed from all sides within the Hashid was significant. And there has been no personality that has been able to replace him. And there has also been no person that has been able to replace Qasim Soleimani. His successor, uh, Ismail Qa'ani, doesn't speak Arabic. Many of the armed groups in Iraq have been quite clear in communicating that they don't trust him the same way that they uh, trusted Soleimani. And yet Iran appears to certainly, I mean, I don't know how much influence Iran has on Sadat himself, you could maybe talk about that, but certainly Iran appears to have made it very clear to Sadat's opponents that Tehran doesn't want an escalation within the Shia house, as you say. Absolutely. I mean, they have always tried to get all of these parties together, also in government formation, right? And now they weren't able to to get them all together, I mean, including Sadr. Uh, but this is also why they intervened when Sadr tried to lure some of his uh, counterparts over from the framework. So yes, Iran is still able to at least communicate red lines that are somewhat respected. But I think the conflict in Iraq has become more and more internalized and more and more personalized that it's very difficult for Iran to manipulate the outcomes of at any given moment. And I think that goes to all regional powers uh, at this point in time. And that is something that is positive, uh, that we don't have any regional actors at the moment that are interested in an unstable Iraq. That was a completely different story 10, 15 years ago. So I think this is really one of the main aspects that would contain an all-out intra-Shia war, uh, let's say. But I think the other aspect is also that, in fact, most of the Shia political parties are not interested. We also have high oil prices right now. All of these parties want to be able to pass a budget further down the line that they can all benefit from. So they stand to lose a lot if they would enter a fight with each other now. Uh, that doesn't mean that it could happen in the future, but I, I think it might be a few years down the road. So, Lahib, we talked about Iran, but what then about the um, 
the US? Uh, was it involved in Western diplomats involved in any way, even behind the scenes? Well, I mean, the US for a long time has uh, sort of downplayed its uh, role in Iraq. It's always had a role in, in the background, of, of course. But even in terms of the level of ambition, the US isn't attempting at forcing certain political outcomes in Iraq the way that it used to. I've seen more diplomatic efforts lately, considering the, the recent crisis, and I think that is a good sign. The reality is that even though the tensions that are playing out have become more internal to Iraq, and it's important for the Iraqi political leaders to find peaceful ways to resolve their issues, most of them have sort of matured into their political role under U.S. occupation and under you know, very strict handholding from external actors. So there is still political leverage that, that can be used constructively. And there is still a role also for, for Iran to play. But I think at this point, the Iranian role is already more of a constructive one, simply in the sense that they are not encouraging uh, a fight inside Iraq. More constructive than in, in the past, you mean? Yes, Lahib, you talked a bit earlier about regional politics, that regional powers, not just Iran, but also some of the Gulf monarchies, other Sunni powers aren't interested in an escalation in Iraq right now, when in some ways they're trying to manage tensions in the region. But what about US-Iran relations? Obviously, over the past year, there's been ups and downs in the Iran nuclear talks, for sure, where things aren't looking great now, but also in wider tensions, Iran's regional role. I mean, is it fair to say that for the most part, both Tehran and Washington have sought to keep that rivalry out of Iraq? I mean, I know the US has refrained from airstrikes on Iran-backed militias in Iraq, for example, whereas it has hit them in Syria. For the last one year or two, I would say yes. Um, the U.S.-Iran rivalry has uh, not subsided entirely, but definitely in Iraq it is not causing uh, as much tension as it used to. And I think the U.S. has been wise in not striking uh, some of these groups directly in Iraq, although they have found other ways to retaliate for attacks against U.S. interests in Syria, for instance. But there's a possibility that that could flare up again, of course, but I don't really see the conditions for it now. And, I mean, one sign to confirm that is actually that many of these groups have had to, you know, they've had to sort of renew their raison d'etre in other ways. And so we've seen much of the rhetoric and the attacks that previously used to target the U.S. shifted more towards Turkey that is now called an occupying power inside Iraq and that has seen its forces and its interests in Iraq come under attack. Because Turkish forces have gone into northwest Iraq basically to fight the PKK, the Kurdish insurgent group, and in some cases have clashed also with Shia allies of the PKK, so with Hashid al-Shabi groups groups that are connected to the Hashta Shabi, yes. And the US and Sadr, I mean, Sadr himself is a, you know, as you said, he's a nationalist. He says he wants less Iranian influence, but he also calls for the US to get out of Iraq. He's religiously conservative. Plus, of course, he led the Mehdi army that you know, fought the US uh, 15 years ago. And yet now, in some ways, in trying to form alliances outside the Shia I mean, could you say that he represents uh, what the U.S. at least 
says it aspires for for Iraqi politics, that politics would move away from the sort of ethnic patronage-based system, or is, or is that too simple a reading of, um, of Sadr? I think it's simplifying reality. Um, for the U.S., of course, they have sought to find a political leader in Iraq that is nationalist, that uh, can act as some sort of buffer to Iranian influence in Iraq, and they have betted on Sadr to be that leader. So broadly speaking, despite all the bad blood, they'd made their peace with Sadr. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's been a 180 turn uh, almost among some parts of the, the U.S. political establishment when it comes to Sadr. So Sadr commanded the main militia that fought the U.S. occupation. And yet now he's, I can't say that he is a partner, uh, but he is someone that I think the U.S. would hope that they can work with and strengthen together with other local partners uh, among the Kurds and the Sunnis. Obviously, that strategy, if, if there was a clear strategy, has not worked out. Uh, and I think it is premature in Iraq. Uh, obviously, we've seen that uh, Sadr's attempt at a majority government was stopped early on. We said already that there is no tradition of opposition politics in Iraq, although there is a hope that that can develop. But I think that simply thinking that Sadr is going to deliver to the West what they would hope to see happen in Iraq is wishful thinking. Sadr, as, as you mentioned, is a conservative religious leader. We could not say that he's a liberal. He might be nationalist. He might have an interest in making sure that his opponents uh, within the Shia house are not strengthened. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to sever whatever ties he has with Iran. And those will always remain because, again, of these transnational links that we mentioned within the Shia political community in the region. So his relationship to Iran is much more complex than simply saying that he's a nationalist and he's been, you know, using slogans such as neither Eastern nor, nor Western. But I think that Sadr is aiming to dominate Iraqi politics. And if he manages to do that, he will do it on his own terms. And so what do you see happening over the next few weeks? I mean, is there going to be some sort of rapprochement between Sadr and at least part of the rest of the Shia house? It has to happen, I think, uh, if we're going to get out of this political impasse uh, without more blood spilled. And I think that there is a sufficient amount of forces, political forces in Iraq that want that. Again, we have a few extremes, especially within the Shia spectrum, that have not been convinced yet that they can come to an agreement. And that is Sadr on the one hand and, and Maliki and Khazali on the other and perhaps a few others. But those are, are the main three, let's say. They've both come to a dead end, I would say. There are framework parties that are still adamant that there needs to be another government for now. And even if it's not a regular government, that at least that the caretaker government would change. Perhaps Sadr can concede. I think that there is another way out, which has also been widely discussed. Uh, President Barham Saleh mentioned it in his speech on the same day uh, of Sadr's speech on the 30th of August calling for early elections. Parliament Speaker Mohammed al-Halbousi has uh, also 
presented an initiative uh, that would sort of combine uh, a type of interim solution until early elections can be held. I don't really see many other options because right now, going back to a consensus government, considering the hardline positions of Sadr on the one hand and, and Maliki on the other are so entrenched. Uh, so the best that we can hope for is that these two come to an agreement on what the role of the caretaker government will be until new elections can be held. And I mean, that will still be at least a year, if not 18 months or more into the future, if it would happen. The reason for that is, of course, that the framework parties are very unlikely to agree to the same electoral law that uh, we use in the recent elections. And so they would have to open up those negotiations again, if not changing the system completely, then maybe redrawing the electoral districts or sort of manipulating the system in a way that it would ensure that the fallout of elections will not produce such big discrepancies in the results between the main Shia political parties. And if you think Sadr might accept a change in caretaker government or a change in the role of the caretaker government, would he accept a change in the election system? He wouldn't want to change the election system, of course, because it has benefited him. But I think he might also see that if he wants to get into government in the future, he will have to concede on something. There is also, of course, a question about this two-third quorum rule and what role that will play uh, after the next election, whenever that is held. So I think that there are several points in the procedures to form government that these parties need to reconsider. And now that both sides are sort of blocked from forming a government, I think that we might see a solution eventually where the current parliamentarians actually agree or go to vote on dissolving parliament. And that would then pave the way for early elections. We're not there yet. I think that we need several weeks, if not a few months, for them to to agree on, on a new roadmap. But it's very clear that we need a political reset from the current situation. And Lahib, you, you talked about... Um Sadr's aspirations to sort of dominate Iraqi politics. But how does he see the role of other Shia parties in that? I think what Sadr is trying to do is what uh, Maliki managed to do for two terms. Um, in Iraq, sometimes they, they talk about the deep state or the deep state of Maliki specifically. Maliki is the only prime minister since 2005 that had two consecutive terms. And I think under the current prime minister, Sadr managed to make inroads into the executive branch that he hadn't had before, and he would want to expand that influence. So he's not trying to tear down the Shia house. He's trying to dominate it. He's trying to be the most powerful of those leaders. And actually, throughout this process, Sadr hasn't had an issue with most other leaders except for Maliki. Maliki is his main rival, is the one political leader that still wields significant power within Iraqi state institutions. But even personalities like Faisal Khazali, initially, he didn't have anything against including him in a government. But of course, it would look quite strange if Sadr would say that, okay, let's do a consensus government with everyone except for Maliki. That wasn't politically feasible. 
And so, uh, Lahib, just to, to, to end then, I mean, we've talked mostly about elite politics, right? I mean, Sadr and Maliki, their rivalry, but the October vote came after months of protests, the Tishreen movement that you mentioned at the beginning and that we talked about in depth last time you came on the, the podcast uh, just over a year ago. So a movement that saw thousands of Iraqis, many young people, take to the streets, Sadr, as as you said, has sort of tried to capitalise on some of that anger, so anger at sectarian politics, at political elites, at mass joblessness for young people, enormous poverty, despite the huge oil reserves, problems with electricity. So there's this other dynamic alongside the sort of factional fighting, sectarian infighting, that many Iraqis, especially young Iraqis, are angry at the total inability of their political establishment to address any of these questions, presumably especially while this gridlock continues? Those grievances remain, of course. I mean, there is nothing that this uh, political crisis has resolved. We have not come anywhere closer to meeting the demands of the protest movement to change the system, to dismantle Mahasasa, which is the ethno-sectarian power-sharing formula that has dominated the political system since 2005. During this crisis, the protest movement or whatever came out of the protest movement in terms of political parties or independent candidates that made it into parliament have really been sidelined. I think that for them, they would have, you know, rejoiced at the potential of having another consensus government because they could have played the role of a clear opposition. But during the last 10 months, there is not much that they have been able to do. We saw, however, after the clashes that people took to the streets again, sort of reiterating, you know, the narratives and the rhetoric that, that came out of, uh, of the protest movement. So the same grievances and the same demands on the political elites stand and you know, they will resurface in one way or another further down the line when the political elites have again come to some sort of internal agreement. Unfortunately, the political elites, you know, once they sort of got rid of the immediate crisis of having people camping out in the capital in other provinces of Iraq for months, they simply went back to business as usual. And this is the big mistake that they're making. And I think, unfortunately, they will make it again until either there is another protest movement or is there is another type of failure or crisis, uh, whether that is pollution of the water that is not potable and poisoning people, as, as we saw happening in Basra in 2018, or uh, significant failure of, of uh, electricity. So those type of, of patterns uh, are there and, and they will come up uh, again. And it's fair to say that the sort of sentiment that the Tishreen movement captured, this anger at elites that, that the protesters were, were expressing, there's no one who's giving voice to that sentiment at the moment amid this sort of political gridlock. I mean, Sadr is uh, sort of feeding into that rhetoric or adopting the rhetoric of, of the protest movement in the sense that he says that he is pro-reform, uh, that he wants to get rid of the corrupt elite, although he is part of the corrupt elite. There might be 
followers of his that uh, buy into that. But largely, I would say, uh, the young people, the activists, the few politicians that took a step into parliament after the protest movement don't really believe that Sadr can be uh, the person to lead the way for, for such fundamental changes to the Iraqi political system. Uh, but it's very difficult for them right now to make their voices heard. Leib, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, of course, on Iraq, everywhere else we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. We have transcripts for our shows. If you want to check up on anything, they're also on our website. So as we kick off season three, we'll be back every Friday with an episode for the next few weeks we may well pick up the pace a bit as there's quite a lot to get through after the summer so watch out for midweek episodes too thanks to our producers Kevin Murphy Alex Figorski thanks to Heiko Schaub who helps out with production and of course thank you to you all of our listeners please get in touch podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly at crisisgroup.org. If you have any suggestions or questions, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. And I very much hope you'll join us again next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.